As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello there, welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast, which does exactly what it says on the tin. We are a a pod that talks about tactics in football, plus tactical trends and data analysis. Brought to you by The Athletic, I'm Ali Maxwell, and today I'm with the usuals, Mark Carey. Probably, actually, the most athletic of the three of us, but sadly out with a long-term injury. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? Good, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Um, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. I'm uh, still fairly static over here, but still uh, got loads of football to watch in the meantime. Champions League is obviously back amongst us as well, so um, still plenty of football to watch, if not play. Now, one good part of your job is that had you been a, a traditional old-school scout, uh, you'd have really struggled to get to games in your current condition. But as a data scout, or writing about data scouting for The Athletic, you can do that uh, with your feet up at home. And you've been focusing on on the returning Champions League with some uh, yeah Champions League data scouting on site this week. Yeah, yeah. there's no excuse for me to have a day off, is there? Because I can just do it from my laptop. So uh, yeah, I looked at eight players uh, involved in the knockout stages of the Champions League um, who are basically having really good seasons for their clubs domestically and in the Champions League, I suppose. Um, a lot of exciting players in there. I, I did include Pedro Goncalves uh, at Sporting, who, if anyone watched uh, the game on Tuesday, probably won't make it to the quarterfinals given that uh, City gave them a bit of a battering. <laughs> but um, yeah, plenty of exciting players still in there and I'd yeah, encourage everyone to have a little read of it. Michael Cox is here too. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. Nice you've got time for us today because I know you've been a, a busy man writing-wise but also podding elsewhere in the Athletics stable this week. Yeah, I made a quick appearance on our WSL pods. Big week in WSL. Uh, Chelsea beat Manchester City 1-0 last Sunday. And then on Friday, it was the top of the table clash between them and Arsenal, which finished 0-0, but a really good game. And um, yeah, it's an interesting campaign in the WSL. There's more points being dropped by the big clubs against everyone else than there have been in the last couple of seasons. So that's uh, it felt like a title decider in terms of being first against second, but because there's so long to go in the season and because the season is more competitive than it has been previously, um, I suspect a few twists and turns to come. Yeah, you joined the gang on the Athletics Women's Football Podcast. That episode is on our feed right now. So if you'd like to hear what Michael had to say about the title race and much more as well, then you can listen on our feed, but also make sure you subscribe to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. You also, Michael, watched Manchester United against Southampton over the weekend. You wrote about this on site early this week. You said it felt like a Bundesliga game. Talk me through the the tactical reasons why. Very high tempo in the opening stages, lots of turnovers, lots of transitions. There were quite a few moments where Southampton looked really dangerous and then didn't quite convert a chance and then were completely open for a counter-attack from Manchester United. And that's the kind of thing I do associate when I watch Bundesliga games. Of course, maybe you can be more specific than, say, Bundesliga game. It was a very kind of RB game, considering these two coaches that worked together. Um, at RB Leipzig a, a few seasons ago, so yeah, a shared um, a shared philosophy, and I think quite a distinct game. You do sometimes just get games that feel specific to a league. I remember watching Everton Villa about two weeks beforehand and thinking it was a very Premier League game, just because it was 
scrappy and fast and frenetic and set pieces and all that kind of stuff. But no, Manchester United Southampton was definitely a, a Bundesliga game. Now I'm trying to work out which Premier League matchups would fit closest into other leagues in terms of how they look, in terms of what, what might look like a Serie A game, what might look like a La Liga game. Yeah, I tell you what, the game last night I watched PSG against Real Madrid, that felt very Serie A, just like a slow tempo. Maybe maybe kind of Serie A from 10, 15 years ago. But of course, Serie A averages the most goals of, of any of the big leagues nowadays, doesn't it? It does, which I find slightly perplexing, because whenever I watch the big games, there never seems to be many goals, but I suppose it's uh, taking into account every team in the league. But um, yeah, that's one of the nice things about football, isn't it? You just get mm. different styles of team and different styles of game. And yeah, certainly the two games I've... yeah have covered so far this week have been completely different in style it, it felt f- from reading your piece like it was Southampton's strategy their tactics that sort of set the tone for the way that game played out right a, a lot of teams outside of the so-called big six head to Old Trafford with a, a certain game plan in mind which might be reactive to Manchester United's you know strengths and talents and more about denying them space denying them opportunities and and hoping for the best on the break but Southampton are would the word be brave in their tactical approach and and that it, it felt from reading your piece was the most important factor here yeah, I think they were brave and I think it did create some chances. Uh, particularly down the left, they were interesting. El Yanusi was the left winger on paper, but really like a number 10. And Perot, the left back, was providing all the width. And that created a good couple of chances for Southampton, but also meant that Manchester United had so much space to roll into on the counter-attack. And I thought it was interesting after the game. I mean, the, the general analysis was that Southampton played really well and maybe deserved a little bit more. And I think you can make a, a case for that, but... Manchester United recorded their highest XG of the season um, mm. and a couple was from set pieces, but they also had, I mean, a couple of one-on-ones. There was a three against one, I think, where Sancho could have made more of it. And I think it, it was an interesting example of, yeah, risk and reward. Southampton always very brave when they go to one of the big sides. And I didn't even really think it was about their pressing here. I think it was just about how many men they threw forward when they were attacking um, and certainly created lots of counter-attacking opportunities for United but did cause themselves some problems, as you wrote about. Do you think this brave approach, I'll call it that again, the risk and reward, as you mentioned there, is it worth the trade-off of being quite so open on the counter? Well, I think you have to be good at it. Obviously, you have to be good at what you do in possession for it to be worthwhile. Um, I'm not completely sold on, on whether it is completely worthwhile for Southampton because I'm not quite sure they have the quality of player at times to really capitalise on, on the good situations they get into. I think Stuart Armstrong is a good example of that. I mean, a really intelligent player comes up with a couple of you know really good moments per season, but his decision-making at times here, I think, really let Southampton down. He was in a lot of space and, and maybe could have found a better pass. And if you've got slightly better players than that, and obviously Southampton be a better team, they, they do slightly worry me at times with how many goals they concede. Um, and I was surprised to see Paul Scholes after the game was almost suggesting Ralph Hasenhutl could do a job at Manchester United next season, which I found a very strange link because when you look at Southampton's results, I think they won 11 of the last 50. I think their goal difference in that time is minus 36 or something like that. I mean, I think he's doing an all right job with the quality of players at his disposal, hasn't Hootel? But um, I would like to see the results be a little bit better before I completely um, buy into what he's doing there, I must say. And in terms of style of play, it is, is you know, was part of what Scholes was suggesting that, that he expects or people expect Manchester United to go down the Bundesliga-esque, RB-esque route because of Ranić's presence there currently in the dugout, but in the future as a sort of sporting director. Do you not think that had probably quite a big aspect on what Scholes said? Like, there's an expectation that Manchester United are going down this path of this style of play and, and therefore you look at managers who might fit that style, maybe more so than, for example, the manager they came up against last night in Graham Potter, who's also very highly rated in, in coaching circles, but whose style of play, as we will discuss later, is very different to this uh, Bundesliga high transition style of play. Maybe. I mean, I don't really understand anything about the Rangnick situation, if I'm being honest. I don't really understand why he's there in a coaching role and I don't understand why he parachutes someone in to a sporting director role and and have put such emphasis upon him deciding who the next manager is going to be. I mean, it's not like the philosophy so far has worked particularly well for Manchester United. I'm not entirely convinced it suits the style of football as Manchester United have. 
So, I mean, if, if you're looking at the, for the next manager, I mean, it's obviously people like, I mean, Ten Hag or Pochettino, they're not radically different from the kind of football that Hasenhutl would want. But the idea that you'd get, a, with respect to bottom half manager who's been recording okay results on the basis that his style of football vaguely connects with a guy whose next role isn't even determined. I mean, he's not going to be, you know, let's be clear about this. They've got a director of football already and they're getting an assistant director of football his job at the moment is just on some kind of consultancy basis. So I think personally, I think people are putting far too much emphasis upon what Rangnick might want from the club. I think they need to just almost forget about that and focus on getting the best manager they can in. And I'd be surprised if that manager was someone like Hasenhutl. It felt like Hasenhutl followed up a, a well-timed result with a very well-timed quote which somewhat went around the world. Uh, he said, It's not a big secret that when Manchester United lose the ball, that the reverse gears are not the best from everybody. What did you make of that quote? Yeah, I mean, he was asked a question and he gave a fair enough answer. I think it's it's clear to see that that is a bit of an issue. I think particularly Marcus Rashford, who was playing on the right and playing as Perrault, and Perrault had so much freedom in behind him. So, yeah, I mean, if he's talking about the work rate of his players and, and how sloppy they are at getting back behind the ball... I think he's uh, he's got a fair point, but I would also make a similar point about his side. I mean, the recovery runs are good, but they find themselves so open when they lose the ball that I think you can make a similar case for them, whether it's about work rate or whether it's about organisation and tactics. I'm not sure is necessarily important, but yeah, Manchester United created their more chances than they have all season um, because they were allowed so many spaces to counter-attack into. So. I think you can uh, level roughly the same criticism at, at uh, Southampton. Yeah, in your conclusion of the piece, you said perhaps their shared philosophy has a shared weakness. Uh, and I wondered if that weakness might be how, how good can you be if you really do lack control to such an extent in moments of transition? I agree with you. And um, there's, two, there's two ways you can look at it. One is getting bypassed when you're trying to press which I don't think happened that much in, in terms of what Southampton were doing. But there's also just getting bypassed if, you know, you're throwing your left back forward to be a left winger and your your left winger is a number 10. You're just not in a good shape to regain the ball or, or in a good shape to, to slow down opposition attacks. So, yeah, it was, it was a really entertaining game, but I must say I wasn't entirely convinced by either side of the weekend. Now we've had Bruno Large get credit for exposing... Manchester United's weaknesses and Ralph Hasenhutl just a few weeks later. It's it's all the rage at the moment. They're obviously not playing 4-2-2-2 uh, anymore, Michael. We spoke quite a lot about that when Ranić was appointed and, and in the podcast we did kind of trying to explain his his, his concepts, his previous styles of play. Um, they are playing more of a 4-3-3, I guess. And there's been a lot of talk about Bruno Fernandes and Pogba as the number eights in a 4-3-3. What have you made of that experiment so far? Yeah, it's, it's a funny one. I mean, that's how everyone really expected Manchester United to play when Fernandes came in. It was the obvious thing to do because, I mean, he played there a little bit before. Paul Pogba clearly is suited to being a number eight as well. So that was the way to to accommodate them and I think the best thing that Solskjaer did and, and probably the thing that meant he, he kept his job for longer than we might have expected was he didn't play that he based the side entirely around Fernandez from the outset I think was completely justified in doing so Fernandez's return of goals and assists and just his overall dominance on the side I think I mean it transformed them really from being an upper mid-table side to a side who finished second um the back end of last season and that was in the space of 18 months and Pogba's a great player you know great talent plays well for France but we know he doesn't do it for Manchester United regardless of what position he's played in and I think Solskjaer was very bold actually in in saying look there's some games where we're going to have to play you deep because we can accommodate you there and in the big games we're going to have to use two proper holding midfielders and we'll either use Pogba out wide or we won't play Pogba at all because the side's based around Fernandes and, and the team is He's playing well enough to justify that. Now, granted, Fernandez hasn't started the campaign well. Um, so maybe there's more justification for using a 4-3-3. But it seems to me like you are compromising what Fernandez does well for the sake of playing Pogba in his best position when even when he's in his best position, he hasn't played that well. And he's probably going to be off at the end of the summer. We don't know. But I, I don't really see the value in doing that, I must say. I think it's a slightly peculiar approach. Um, but Fernandez was still good at the weekend, to be fair. I think his pass for the for the uh, Sancho goal 
this pass in behind for Rashford was mm. massively underrated because it, you have to play that ball completely straight. You can't put any curl on it. And I think to play it completely straight but not put too much pace on it so it will go out of play is a really difficult skill. And uh, yeah, I really like Fernandes. I, I still think he's massively underrated. His on-ball actions and his, his quality is kind of undeniable and we've seen that since he, he came in. But I think you, you also noted it in the piece you did recently, Michael, where in the lead-up to, I think, a Southampton chance it Fernandez is pressing off the ball it's sometimes what he does off the ball that's been problematic I think this season because he he tries to yeah lead by example and, and show that he's high energy and making sure that you're closing down people but I think there's been other occasions that maybe I think one against Liverpool where he just gets picked off so easily and he's just taken out of the the press so easily um and then that has a knock-on effect in terms of the overall team press because maybe the rest of the team's kind of being reactive. And that's the whole point with Ranić. If you go in the press, you go together. And sometimes he's he's a little bit isolated on his own. And I even looked at the the data on that as well in terms of pressure success for players. Um, I looked at it within the Man United squad. So this is from from Statsbomb via via FB Ref. And the pressure success basically looks at the the percentage of. Um, the, the time that a team has gained possession within five seconds of the player applying that pressure. And Fernandez is actually one of the the higher pressers in volume in the, in the squad, but in terms of his actual success rate, he's one of the lowest at about 27%. So it, it shows that trade-off between the, the quantity and the quality of that press. I know we're going to sort of come on to, to that in more detail, but his on-ball actions, yeah, you can't really deny his quality, but sometimes off the ball, he's, his actions have a knock-on effect for the rest of the team, which is how they're sometimes a bit susceptible um, defensively. I think probably the highest profile example of what you're talking about was against Liverpool, I think. Did he close down the goalkeeper mm. where there was absolutely no need to do so? Yeah. Didn't get the, the backing from his teammates and the sort of deck of cards fell down pretty quickly and Liverpool had scored within 10 seconds or so. I mean, just to, to finish off this discussion about, about Manchester United it's uh, Mark we talk about recruitment a lot we talk about squad building we talk about recruiting for a style of play and it is not an easy thing to do uh, particularly when you chop and change managers other clubs have succeeded most notably uh, Liverpool and Manchester City with the benefit of having had uh, consistency in the dugout but all through the last 15 minutes, Michael talking about this United side and the issues that Ranić's having and the issues maybe they had beforehand. And maybe this is a bit of sort of outcome bias because they're, they're clearly not in the best shape at the moment. But I'm struggling to, to, to work out what this current squad, which style they could be suited to necessarily. Because if, if, if we were talking about a more possession-based style, I guess the obvious argument would be they don't really have the central midfield players for that, um, of, of course, Bruno Fernandez is a very creative passer, makes a lot happen uh, in the in the ten position. But you probably need a bit more than that in terms of progressing the ball and those comfortable creating chances in a, in a more possession based style. I think it's pretty obvious they don't necessarily have the fullbacks for a number of the sorts of styles that the top teams play at the moment. Uh, and of course, then you have the question with with how best to work out how to play the you know the, the forward players with Cristiano Ronaldo with Cavani when he's fit, Rashford, Sancho feels like at the moment, and this is probably a case of they're not doing so well, and therefore it's easy to pick holes and and raise the obvious problems. It just does feel like there's just so many questions about so many areas of the pitch here and and the individual players when it comes to what's next, what style should they be going for. Yeah, and I feel like it's the same topic of discussion that we had when we did that Ralph Ranić episode, however long ago that was. It it seems to be the same thing where it's sometimes the the right players in the wrong position, or sometimes chopping and changing between the players to try and understand who might be best for that position. And obviously, you do need consistency to to get good good results and a good sort of cohesion in in terms of the performance as well. So. It just seems to be the same questions, doesn't it? Season upon season, and even within the season, lack of consistency in performance, in manager, in in formation, um, and something has has got to to give at some point, I suppose. But um, I think you're right about the midfield. I think that's that's really key. They've been crying out for defensive midfield or a really strong midfield presence for so long, and. Who knows? I think that could be kind of one of the key things to to change their fortunes because they are often overrun in midfield, as as Michael showed in that that piece, um, you know, against Southampton. Mm. So that could be key to changing their fortunes. But um, I suppose that won't be until the summer now that a change may may come about. 
Well, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, and we're going to be talking about transitions. Can't live with them, can't live without them in modern football. We'll step away from Manchester United and we'll delve a little bit deeper into those moments of transition, why they're so important. That's up next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, M- Michael, after I read your piece on United and Southampton, you know, it was so clear that moments of transition played such a big part in that game. And in many games in the Premier League at all levels now, that, that can be the case. So it, it just gave me an idea for a, a slightly deeper discussion I I kind of asked you guys if we could try and discover which Premier League teams are best and worst or most active or least active in moments of transition and and why so that's what we'll try and achieve from here on out on today's episode I think because I'm going to be saying the word transition a lot here and I already hate how much I'm going to be saying it I wanted to start with a a question of semantics Michael because I thought could I could I switch between using transitions and just using the word counterattacks? I think there are some people who might grumble and say, why, do you, why are you now using the word transitions all the time? This modern mumbo jumbo. In our day, we just said counterattacks. Uh, are they the same thing? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. <laughs> what? So talk me through that. Well, I mean, a transition is... is when you go from being in possession to out of possession or vice versa. So being out of possession to being in position, uh, possession, obviously that can be a counter-attack, but not necessarily because not every situation you're going to directly break with the ball. So, yeah, it's, it's, more, it's just the change of the phase of play, isn't it? And if the opposition are very good at their defensive transition and slow your attack down, then you can't counter-attack. So, yeah, for me, it's just about how you go from your in-possession shape to your out-of-possession shape or vice versa. And I think that was particularly important for that aforementioned Southampton game because the, they were doing so, they were being so extreme with how they used their left back and their left winger that then getting back to a good defensive block was very difficult. It was a difficult mm. defensive transition. So, it's, you know, to, to go back to the argument before, it's not that their work rate was bad. It was just that they were playing two different shapes that makes it so hard to transition back into a good uh, defensive block. And in tactical terms, in coaching terms, you know, we often talk about how teams build up their sorts of patterns of play, how they look to attack in possession. Uh, We often talk about a team's defensive structure and believe that that shows how well coached a team is out of possession uh, and and denying the goal, uh, goal scoring opportunities for the opposition. But these moments of transition are equally as important tactically and probably give us a, a pretty good idea of how good a coach is, right, in the modern game. Yeah, certainly a big part of it. I mean, it's a big part of the organisation of the side and the decision-making of the manager and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, often, I mean, if there's gaps to exploit at transitions, then then you often do have an issue, whether that's organisational or kind of work rate thing. So it comes down to, to questions of when we lose the ball, are we, are we going after it? Are we proactive are we pressing or are we more focused on reorganizing when we win the ball uh, are we advancing at speed are we attacking immediately against a, a sort of loose defense or are we resetting recycling and and kind of trusting our our, our build-up play our controlled possession that these are the situations that can define games and, and therefore define the success of teams mark without being in team meetings and understanding what managers are asking their team to do how can we measure a team's style in transition and the choices that they make yeah it's it's a tricky one to to kind of measure um especially because if you were to, sometimes things can get kind of washed out in terms of the numbers because we're looking as as michael said specifically within those 
often five to ten seconds between you know regaining the ball or often losing the ball so it's it's quite important to kind of time stamp certain actions mm-hmm. and see exactly then what happens so if we were to look at it yeah a certain metric broadly across the the whole game across the whole season it, it might not you know specifically zone in on those ones but there's still certain things that we can kind of look at as a as a proxy um and it's been spoken about a lot on this podcast looking at passes per defensive action ppda is still a really useful measure in that regard because it's when you do when you are out of possession yeah how quickly do you go and get it back so Again, that shows that sort of intensity, maybe not as as quickly timestamped, but often you'll find those who are more highly uh, intense in their press are likely to be more intense in their in those transitional moments. And do you think is there a strong correlation between a low PPDA and more high turnovers? More examples of a team winning the ball high up the pitch. I haven't actually done the the correlational analysis per se, but I would I would say that would definitely be the case. Yeah, okay. it, it would certainly make sense, and it it gives a, an indication, as I say, in terms of style uh, mm-hmm. as much as anything. And and just on the note of PPDA, and many people may already know this, but it's it's important to sort of note that it it only reflects the the final sixty percent of the pitch. So in terms of kind of that intensity of the press, you may be thinking if you're the the team who is defending from level with your own kind of centre circle and beyond. So it shows, again, it's more likely to be when you are maybe in possession or in a central to attacking area of the pitch and then pouncing on the defensive sort of action rather than if it's going to be within your own third, you're going to make a defensive action <laughs> yeah. because it's, you know, you, they're near your goal. So it, it does give a... a clear indication of that pressing intensity within an important area of the pitch beyond your defensive third so and and out, outside of pressing we're also talking about uh, moments of counter-attacking how, how can we measure which teams are very keen to spring counter-attacks when they do win the ball back in their own half yeah that's right and it's something i've used quite often um on the site in looking at direct attacks which is a really useful metric and a, a measure which essentially looks at the the possessions that start within a team's defensive half and then result in a shot or at least a touch inside the opposition penalty area within 15 seconds so that's really useful in having that time stamp as well to show within a short space of time winning it in your own half and ending up very close to uh, the opposition's uh, goal or obviously taking a shot is is a good measure and a proxy of counter-attacking play as you say so putting those two together and mapping that sort of ppda the defensive actions and then attacking or counter-attacking together you can start to build a picture of you know a team's transitional play but again they're proxies it's it's hard to to give it accurately but it gives an indication and i'm, I'm quite pleased to say that unlike when we talk about tracking data and i can't actually access any of that um you know the opta <laughs> analyst site is actually pretty good just for you know your average football fan in terms of and this is important to have all the context and to understand what mark is saying um about various caveats here but there there are on the opter analyst site a, a lot of things that you can dig into which can help build a picture of a team's style so in this sense uh, they've got things like sequence time um, passes per sequence and direct speed as well Th- these are all things that can give a pretty good idea of of which teams are keen to reset recycle and build in possession and those who are quite keen to exploit any space that might be left in, in moments of transition yeah, exactly as you say, and it's it's just those building blocks together. You can use those metrics to create a clear idea. Maybe one on their own, maybe not too informative, but putting them all together and and things like high turnovers, so or winning the ball back in in the attacking third. Uh, more specifically, you can look at then the the volume of those that actually lead to a shot as well. So not just winning the ball back in high areas and then recycling it, maybe passing back to the centre backs and starting again. How in those transitional moments, how active is a team to actually turn mm-hmm. that into a shot? And you can just using the, the website you referred to on, on the analyst, you can just even calculate yourself just looking at the proportion of those high turnovers, winning the ball back in those attacking areas, what percentage, what proportion then actually lead to a shot and then building the, the building blocks as I say from there. And I'm going to make it, as I often do, even harder for you because uh, often uh, you've talked about using the numbers to build an idea of the style uh, of a team's play and and get an idea of their strategy. And I always want to know next, how can we rate what they're doing? How can we judge whether they are doing it well or poorly? Because, of course, doing something a lot doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it well. 
I think it's a really good point. It is that trade-off between the, the quantity of a certain action and the quality of it. And it probably comes back to what we spoke about before in terms of Bruno Fernandes, of that, that trade-off between choosing when to press and how effectively to press. So I probably go back to that pressure success, that stats bomb uh, metric, which mm-hmm. looks, as I say, at, at how well the, the proportion of a time that the team gained possession within those five seconds of applying a pressure. You might have a, t- you know, a team or a side who is the highest pressing or applies the most pressure out of possession of anyone in the league but then actually doesn't win it back they might be high pressing but then get picked off (laughs) that would be quite problematic right because uh, i'm sure we've as we've discussed before those teams that do press high up the pitch that the risk in doing so is that when your press is played through that you've got more space to defend and fewer defenders to defend that space so it's often the teams who press high but press poorly that end up being among the worst defensive teams in the league yeah, exactly. So it is completely about that that trade-off between quantity and quality. And it's something which Ralph Ranić spoke about a lot in terms of that rest defence as well. And it's something I've been really interested in recently to, to look at when you're in possession, sort of being very pessimistic in your, maybe your centre-backs and your midfielders thinking, are we in a good position if we lose possession um, to, to, you know, to not be susceptible to the counter-attack. Mm. So I find that really interesting, maybe more from a tactical perspective, it's quite difficult to to measure rest defence. But yeah, it is all about that trade-off, isn't it, between quantity and quality. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Next on the agenda with Michael Cox and Mark Kerry, we'll take a look at the teams in the Premier League that triumph in transition and those who tremble. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, Michael, let's dig a little deeper into the Premier League uh, as part of this discussion. When I say to you which Premier League teams are defined by what they do in moments of transition, which teams instinctively spring to mind? Uh, I suppose Liverpool, because they're very good at attacking transitions, very good at counter-attacking from deep positions into yeah, getting the ball to Salah, Mane on, on the run. Of course, they are known for their defensive transitions as well because they counter-press very well. And that is a, a form of what you do at transitions. And I suppose Leeds, because of how quickly they sprint forward into attack, but also be able to put some big emphasis on the recovery one, uh, runs when the ball is lost. So, yeah, there's, there's probably other teams in Manchester City excel at almost every concept. But if you're talking about which, uh, which teams specialise in it uh, compared to other factors, I would say Liverpool and Leeds off the top of my head. When Liverpool started to become the team that they are now, it was clear that that it was their skill in moments of transition that that was helping them to stand out and 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 setting them apart. Michael, are, are they still as good in those moments? Have they had to develop other parts of their play in order to remain at the top? I think they're still as good in those moments. I'd say maybe they depend on them less because I think they have developed their game in possession. I think their structure is very good. Um, obviously, they get a lot of assists from the wide areas, which is because of the, the quality of the fullbacks, but also the quality of the runs they make in the box. Um, so I don't think they're a pure transition side. I think they're quite different to Klopp's Dortmund, for example, which I think were almost purely good in those uh, aspects of the game. But yeah, clearly still very good in, in that respect. Yeah, I think Liverpool are an interesting one in terms of their their transition on and off the ball. And it was something I think that Virgil van Dijk was asked, I think on BT Sport recently in terms of 
their high line in terms of if they are caught out in those moments of transition, then there's players who can easily kind of get in behind if they were to to do it right. I think they had um, in a in a cup game, Liverpool had a lot of problems with Leicester running in behind with Dakar and, and Vardy specifically. So, yeah, we want to keep a high line because we know we can win the ball up high, and it's the risk you have to take. And the ball takes quite some time to get to the front, so you have time to get back as as midfielders or even as the strikers. Luckily, they trust us in the back to to be able to deal with that. But it's sometimes not easy. You have to uh, be brave. Today I played against Patson Daka, who is crazy quick, in my opinion. Um, so you have to be uh, have to be ready. And um, but yeah, we, we 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 train on this. Obviously, we don't want to be standing and keep our hands up when and hope for offside. We try to uh, do it at the right time. And when you're not sure, you just have to follow. And but it's, it's you want to want to win the ball high up, and that's the reason why we uh, trying to keep a high line and um, keep it as, as compact as possible. They're really good at those transitional moments in attack, but sometimes if if ever they are kind of bypassed, their high line, which has that high risk, high reward, can sometimes have a bit of a... Yeah, it's the cost-benefit ratio, isn't it, of just how well you can squeeze the pitch, but if you can get in behind them and beat that press. Liverpool do it really well with that high line and keeping a lot of teams offside. Um, they're really good at keeping that high line, but it's always that trade-off of really counter-attacking and throwing your men forward and not you know, making sure that you're not susceptible yourself then to a, a counter on the counter. Michael, you mentioned Leeds there. Uh, is it is it fair to say that their style hasn't changed too much in their second season at Premier League level under Bielsa? But in terms of results, they're obviously not doing as well. Is it a case that the effectiveness of their tactical style has been reduced? Maybe teams have got accustomed to playing against them a little bit like they did with Sheffield United. Maybe the players are just a little bit drained both physically and mentally and also they've had some injury problems I think that the loss of Bamford mm. um, has been a major issue and some issues at the back as well Phillips hasn't always been fit so yeah a few little things going on um, but yeah at times they're still pretty dangerous on, on transitions and their um, you know their best player this season has been Rafinha who I think is very good in those situations and and Mark <laughs> Michael mentioned Leeds and Liverpool as the two teams that he sort of thinks most strongly linked to, to moments of transition in the game uh, in terms of, of the numbers. Do they marry up to that? Is there anyone else that we need to be talking about? Yeah, no, I mean, Leeds and Liverpool absolutely do. Um, I mean, so I did a, a piece fairly recently which was helping to to look at the top four um, and the relegation candidates. And we looked at this team style. So we've plotted the the direct attacks per 90, what we were speaking about before, and, and the PPDA and plotted them together, essentially such that if the team's kind of hovering in the top right-hand corner... They're high on both of those metrics and Liverpool and Leeds are comfortably in the, the top right-hand corner, kind of on their own, really. Um, but Manchester City and Chelsea kind of nearby them in in terms of those that style as well, so as you would expect. But I think on, on the Leeds point as well, I, I agree with Michael that to some extent, I think teams have learned to play against them and you can see sometimes a lot of kind of shadow runs or a lot of runs from the opposition to pull Leeds out of out of position um, a lot when they they're in possession because you know that their man marking style will open up spaces as well and I'm sure we'll come on to it in a bit more depth later but I also looked at the direct attacks that teams concede so possessions that I guess flipping on its head possessions that start in the opponent's defensive half and then result in a shot conceded from um, from these teams and Leeds are the fifth highest in terms of conceding a shot or at least the opposition reaching their own penalty area within those 15 seconds mm -hmm. of losing the ball so it shows that they are themselves quite susceptible to the counter-attack probably owing to their style of play uh, which other teams are, are up there Leeds in fifth uh, I know that we can't say definitively this shows who is weak at defending moments of transition but uh, in terms of the numbers which teams have been you know high volume on that front Again, it's the building blocks, the style of play that certain teams play in. So it's not a kind of a one-size-fits-all and it's understanding why it might be the case um, of certain teams higher than others. But Burnley are actually the highest um, of any team. I think it's maybe due to the fact that they play in quite a deep block themselves. So in the few occasions that they do then go and push and press <laughs> forward, they then get maybe sucker-punched on the, the way back. So I don't know whether that is the case, but Burnley are actually the, the highest, um, conceding 34 
direct attacks per 90, so on average across the season. Brentford are quite high as well, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, they're second on the list. And Southampton, um, a joint third, which marries up with what you were saying, Michael, obviously in your piece with how they do attack um, attack well and get those fullbacks really high, especially on the left, but then you know susceptible to the, the counter-attack themselves. So um, it's, again, just shows you know a bit of a picture, just that on its own, but um, start to build that context around it as to why that might be. I suppose there's a there's a chance that Burnley might also have the highest number of sort of build-up attacks against them as well, and 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 that might just come back to spending a lot of time defending and therefore defending in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it, it was going to say that actually is a really good point. It comes back to what we said about last week in terms of adjusting for the amount of possession mm. that a uh, that a team has when we're talking about the defensive actions as well. That context of you're more likely to to have a certain action depending on how much of the ball you have or how little of the ball you have. So there's all those things to to account for as well. It'd be interesting to adjust that for uh, the amount of possession that a team has as well. Michael, in Mark's graph that sort of proxy measures intensity and counter-attacks Leeds and Liverpool in the top right quadrant that is high press intensity many counter-attacks I'm interested in in two teams on the left side which indicates a high press intensity but fewer counter-attacks and probably not by coincidence we're looking at Brentford and Brighton and Hove Albion here so they do get lumped in together a little bit and in this conversation they're fairly similar as well what's the what's the tactical reasoning behind approaching a game with a high press intensity but not being so keen on moving the ball quickly forward on the counter well that's a good question and I must say I don't know if I have a solid answer for that because I think Brentford and Brighton has been quite different tactically Mm. but I think the two I mean they're not necessarily related are they the two concepts I mean you can you can do things those way without it being a contradiction, if that makes sense. I don't know. Mark might have a better answer than that. Yeah, no, you're right. I think this is where I was putting this this sort of graphic together, knowing that it wouldn't necessarily paint the, the biggest picture. And you obviously take into account that this counter-attacking from the direct attacks is winning the ball back in your defensive third and then obviously springing off. But it could be the case that Brighton and Manchester City, for example, who do do this a lot, Liverpool included in that as well, of winning the ball back higher than that you know having a really high intense press and then winning the ball in the attacking third and then maybe you know taking a shot off the back of it as well so it's not a uh, you know a single graphic that explains everything but Brighton might be a, a case where they are winning it back even higher up the pitch and then doing something with it as well and maybe that that area in from their own defensive half isn't necessarily conducive to then counter-attacking they're more likely to re you know circulate it and and start their build-up again and then when they do win it back maybe in higher areas that's maybe when they'll sort of spring mm. a, a really sort of a counter-attack if you want to call it that but in a in a area far closer to the goal Michael it feels like Brighton are in in their sort of fairly patient build up style uh, are getting sort of good enough at that I think we know numbers wise particularly over the last two seasons improving all the time on that front to to the point where uh, you know it is working for them it it kind of justifies turning down maybe counter-attacking opportunities because you can back yourself to to build better attacks maybe um, from the back whereas Brentford it feels like they're, they're still sort of getting to grips with how they might approach the Premier League. Clearly made a sensational start and in all likelihood picked up enough points to, to be a Premier League club next year, but have suffered in the last few weeks. And I just wonder whether they might need to develop tactically like Brighton did in their first few seasons of the Premier League in order to, to well, try and reach the levels of Brighton. Yeah, I think at times... Brentford could be a little bit more adventurous and a bit more creative when they have possession, when they have long spells of possession. And that's obviously why they brought in Christian Eriksen, because they're not creating a lot of chances from open play. But I've enjoyed watching them, Brentford. I think they've caused the big sides major problems at times. And I think they've been a little bit unlucky with a couple of defeats. I think at home to Chelsea and was it away at Manchester? Or home to Manchester United. Um, they played really well and were just unfortunate, I think. You know, even when you look at the expected goals figures, they were pretty unfortunate not to pick up things from those games. So yeah, I hope they don't move away too much from their style because I do like I do like having a couple of sides in the Premier League who are very good at mm. being direct, and I think they are one of them. And the other one, Burnley, I think there's obviously a question mark about whether they'll be around next year. 
They have an unbelievable record from set pieces as well this season, which has definitely been written about uh, on site as well. A couple of extra questions just while we have you guys on this topic. Mark, does anyone in the quote-unquote big six not press the opposition very much? It feels like almost every big team does that now as a, as a general rule. Uh, do any clubs in the big six not press so much? And if so, why would you not? Arsenal would probably be someone who uh, would, uh, yeah, they do press press a lot less. Looking at their their passes per per defensive action, they are quite quite low within the league, but they are very high possession based, I suppose. So why that might be, uh, I don't know. I don't know whether it's maybe the the style of play that they have. They're essentially playing with four forwards in their four two three one, so that if they were to be kind of bypassed, then their midfield two would maybe get exposed a little bit. So they maybe think about dropping into a lower block. I don't know whether that's something you thought about, Michael, but it, it just seems to be definitely a conscious decision not to be really high pressed from Arsenal. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not quite sure why that is, but it does seem to have, compared to Arteta's first season or so, or first half season, they're certainly pressing less than they were. But I guess his first half season was a bit of a a bit of a weird one. One, because he came in, I think he wanted to instill his ideas and then obviously they had a three-month break for COVID and then, you know, had, had basically had a, probably had quite good fitness levels at that point after that break. So, yeah, I, I have noticed it, yeah. So it's interesting to start to say that as well. Michael, where are you at at the moment with Arsenal and Arteta and... You know, if the assumption was when Arteta joined that this would be a, a multi-year project, a young manager who would build something, uh, are we at the point after what are we two years or so where y- you still think, yeah, we can see the ideas that he's implementing and the team and the manager sort of growing together? Yeah, I think you can see the ideas. Um, I think this has broadly been a positive season for Arsenal after last year. Couldn't really see any major signs of progress. I think to give Arteta credit, the the bits of the side that are looking good are the sides where he's the players have been brought in under his watch, if you like. Um, I mean, they do still play the ball well, uh, forward from the back very well, um, and I think the centre back partnership is good. I think the, the whole defensive block looks good. The question really is whether they've got the great individuals in the final third, particularly in in the centre forward position. And I think it is a concern that he's fallen out so majorly with Ozil and Aubameyang because those were the two players really with Arsenal who were capable of being world-class. And I think to be a, a top-four side consistently, you're going to need to accommodate good players who, who maybe do need a little bit of freedom from the system at some time at some points. Um, and we haven't yet seen that Arteta is capable of really accommodating those players over the long term. So, yeah, I, I think they're going in the right direction. But, um, I, yeah, it's easy to say they need better players. Hmm. But they need the managers to be able to incorporate the better players. I think that's the, the key factor. That's interesting. Uh, lastly, on this week's topic of of moments of transition in the Premier League, I asked you whether there was any way we could work out or measure who defends transitions well uh, and then work out how they do that, why they do that. Michael, did you find any answers? Uh, Mark will have more advanced stats than me, but there's stats in terms of sides who haven't conceded from counter-attacks this season, mm-hmm. which is interesting. They are Southampton, which doesn't really fit with my uh, <laughs> opening half to this podcast. <laughs> Palace is an interesting one. Uh, mm. And then Wolves. I mean, Wolves sit very deep, so I can't imagine many situations where Wolves are going to get counter-attacked on anyway. So um, that probably explains that one. To give you the benefit of the doubt, Michael, I think if you were to look at just goals, it might be kind of skewed by outcome bias just a little bit mm. so I think your Southampton point is still valid because you could look at it again yeah in terms of shots so leading back to that sort of direct attacks conceded Southampton are kind of right up there in terms of conceding a lot um, but yeah I find the Crystal Palace one really interesting as well I, I maybe should map this in a, a graphic as well in terms of the passes per defensive action and the direct attacks conceded um, but Crystal Palace actually have conceded the the lowest uh, number of shots or the opposition reaching their own penalty area in terms of this direct attacks conceded of any team in the Premier League, more or fewer, I should say, than Manchester City. So I'm interested to know why that might be, is that they got a really kind of strong midfield presence, I suppose, to, to stop those and snuff them out? Or is it just that it's just not within their style to 
to even be susceptible to that. I think that's an interesting one because the other kind of usual candidates of Chelsea, Manchester City, Wolves, as you say, Michael, are, are kind of low in terms of conceding from the counter-attack. Mm. So that kind of makes sense. Uh, I, maybe I just haven't watched enough of Crystal Palace across a whole 90 minutes for you know, long periods this season to, to understand why that might be. But that's an interesting one. I wonder, Michael, if it, it could be a mixture of of mentality, of, of you know, this is by design. We, we really, you know, Patrick Vieira thinking, I really do not want to be a team that is open when we lose the ball and therefore maybe a, a little more conservative in terms of committing numbers forward. And then, as Mark said, if you look at the personnel, and again, I'm not saying this is the answer, but while he was talking, that midfield, you spoke about Kuyate and James MacArthur, you're rarely going to see these guys breaking their necks to get into the box and, and overcommit themselves going forward. Conor Gallagher's obviously a, a slightly different story, and I guess it's his quality in the final third that has helped um, help them pick up points at times this season where otherwise they've been a bit a bit clogged up. But perhaps it, it comes down to the fullbacks as well, Michael. Um, Joel Ward, I think their general right-back, probably not leaving himself too exposed high up the pitch as well. Um, it comes back to the way we've spoken about Manchester City using their fullbacks uh, in and out of possession as a way of, of sort of guarding, uh, of adding insurance against moments of transition. Yeah, that's a good point on the fullbacks. I think Ward is probably quite a traditional fullback and, and Mitchell, a good player defensively, does get forward well, but both quite solid. Uh, yeah, it's interesting with the midfield. I mean, sometimes they've been playing like Will Hughes in the the holding role. So I don't think of them as particularly kind of sturdy and physical. But yeah, maybe positionally they're very good. I think as well, actually, I probably should actually use a piece that I helped with uh, Matt Woosnam with um, for you know the Crystal Palace writer this week, actually, on that point. And I think it links because we were looking at how few players on average the Crystal Palace actually commit men in the box. And I think that you made a good point there, Ali, of asking that question of maybe it is that they aren't committing too many midfield runners and there's not much disruption going on in attack such that they are pretty solid and, and stay fairly conservative um, in defence, which then makes them less susceptible to the counter-attack. So I should probably use some of the pieces that I've contributed to to answer <laughs> my own question, um, which, yeah, people can read on site. Would it be good to hear from... Palace fans listening to this podcast. Uh, this is a pod where uh, I found it really interesting, and and you know because as you've said, Mark, we can get we can sort of raise some questions about style using the numbers, but uh, in terms of getting absolute answers about individual teams, it takes a bit more than that. So I'd love to hear from from fans of clubs um, very specifically on on this matter. How do your teams uh, approach moments of transitions, and do you think it it helps your team? Is it a hindrance for your team? Is it an issue? I think this is a really, really interesting discussion. So thank you to Mark and to Michael for, for joining me and talking me through it. Time for me to make our final transition from discussion to outro. Uh, that's it from us this week. Make sure you're, you're reading everything these guys are writing on the Athletic site. If you'd like to sign up today, you can do so with a 33% discount by heading to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Do make sure you listen to Michael on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. That episode is on this very feed, so you don't need to travel far, but you should absolutely be subscribing to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast as well. And join us next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.